This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 28, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. California is looking at a particularly pernicious form of regulation when it comes to what doctors say about COVID-19, particularly if those doctors are spreading what the state considers to be misinformation. As of this recording, it's unclear if Governor Gavin Newsom will go along with it. Cato's Jeff Singer comments. What is California's legislature asking the governor to sign. Yeah, the California legislature passed and sent to Governor Newsom's desk AB 2098, the so-called COVID misinformation bill. And what this would do, uh, using the bill's own language, it would, quote, designate the dissemination by physicians and surgeons of misinformation or disinformation related to the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus or COVID-19 as unprofessional conduct. And the bill further goes on to say it defines misinformation as, quote, false information that is contradicted by a contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care, close quote. Now, when you first hear that, a reasonable person might say, well, wait a minute, um, what's so unique about this? After all, uh, when uh, if, a, if a doctor gets sued for medical malpractice, isn't the plaintiff arguing that the doctor violated the standard of care and caused harm for the patient? And also, uh, you know, if you complain to the licensing board that the physician violated the standard of care, isn't isn't the job of the licensing board to make sure that their licensees are following the standard of care? And if not, it could discipline or sanction them or even remove their license. And the answer is yes. But what's different about this and what's upsetting about this is that when we're talking, this bill is unique to this, to COVID-19 information. And there is no standard of care yet, because in order for there to, to be a standard of care, you have to have, you know, a, a considerable amount of time of experience with the particular medical condition. So for example, in my field, I'm a, I'm a surgeon. So if somebody comes in uh, with complaints that are suspicious for acute appendicitis, after all these years, there's a standard way in which we diagnose and treat appendicitis upon which there's a broad consensus among surgeons. And if somebody does something that's completely, you know, out of the mainstream on that, and there's, of course, a bad outcome, then the patient would be justified in saying, you know, you violated the standard of care in the way you treated my appendicitis, and now look at me, and I'm suing you. But this isn't like that. We have a novel virus that's never existed before that arrives on the scene a little over two and a half years ago. It's it's continued to evolve and change, and our knowledge about the virus has continued to evolve. Everybody could recall how first they were saying it was nothing, it was not going to be worse than the flu, then it was worse than the flu, then wear a mask, then don't wear a mask, then wear a mask. Um, there's, there was a debate about whether we should uh, have lockdowns, uh, should there be masks in school, what kind of and And to this day, we're still debating this. In fact, May recall we had a conference on this recently at the Cato Institute. In the early days, the Swedish health authorities took a different approach than the United States, and many here in the United States were criticizing them. But now, two and a half, three years later, the Swedes look came out looking pretty good. Um, so there really is not yet a standard of care; there are just differences of opinion. And so, if if it turns out that uh, a very you know competent, experienced, knowledgeable physician or epidemiologist or researcher happens to disagree with the official pronouncements of the government public health officials, 
that's being interpreted in this legislation as violating the standard of care. But even the government health, how many times have we heard them change? Uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC has told has admitted recently that they made a lot of mistakes. They had a lot of conflicting and incoherent messages. So that's the problem I have with this, because you're basically going to penalize somebody for having an opinion that disagrees with the official opinion of the government. But there is no yet no standard of care, and there may not be for several more months or even years. And I think of, it brings me to um, a very famous story in medical history. The story of Dr. John Snow. Back in the 1800s, before the, the germ theory finally gained acceptance, the cholera epidemics were considered to be caused by what they called in those days a miasma or bad air. So they believed that bad air was making its way through the city, creating cholera. And in 1854, there was a very bad cholera epidemic in London, and a physician, Dr. John Snow, uh, he did some detective work and he said, you know, it looks like everybody who's come down with cholera got their water from this Broad Street water pump. And I think there's something in the water supply that's making people sick. Well, the official government position was, no, it's bad air. And he was derided and ridiculed. Uh, then after the epidemic subsided, they took all sorts of measures to clean the air and then in 1866, another epidemic hit, and they could, they're scratching their heads and say, how could this happen? We did all the things we need to to clean up the air. And they went back and checked that brusty water pump that Do Dr. Snow talked about 12 years earlier, and sure enough, he was right. Now, if that law was th that they're trying to pass in California was in effect in England, I wonder if Dr. Snow would have lost his license for suggesting that it came from the brusty water pump. So that's my point, that not only is this a free speech violation, but it's actually, it's preventing scientific progress because when you have new things occurring on the scene, it's not like you could necessarily know everything right away. We're, we're constantly having our knowledge base change. And this, this is actually discouraging questioning whether or not our understanding of this thing is right or not. And it's going to make us, make us take longer to make progress. Yeah. I wonder about that because, uh, you can imagine that physicians uh, have a, a special role to to evaluate evidence and give their best reading of that evidence for their patients, for people they don't know very well. Maybe they would do this on social media. But if the if the concern is, look, we we know what the science is and the government is going to set that in stone or hand off to a regulatory body decisions about what the science is, a lot of physicians would just say, well, no, I'm just not going to participate. I'm not going to uh, weigh in on this issue. I'm not going to give the public the benefit of my considered right. opinion about what what problems are, uh, you know, what the realities of this virus are. Yeah, here's an example. Um, and, and I think in set many jurisdictions, they're requiring uh, people to get uh, the third shot, the, the you know, the after the two dose series of the COVID mRNA vaccine uh, as in order to, to uh, go to public schools. So uh, may, many people may not be aware, but it's actually controversial whether people who are young need that third shot. There's, uh, there's a very low risk of getting seriously ill from COVID. And there is a real risk that young people, particularly males, can come down with myocarditis. So in Denmark, which is not, you know, uh, a, 
a backward primitive country, their public health department is now saying we do not recommend the third shot for anyone under the age of 50 unless they have a particular circumstance like they're immunocompromised or have some severe risk factors where they're particularly fragile. So they're not recommending it for anybody under the age of 50. So are they peddling misinformation? Or if my patient who's under the age of 50 asks me, do you think I should get that third shot? If I tell that patient, if the California law is signed into law, if I, do I, if I tell that patient, well, you know, in, in Denmark, they're actually not recommending people in your category to get this shot. Could I lose my license for saying that? Because I'm contradicting the government authorities. That's why I have a problem with this. And I, uh, I hope the governor sees that and decides to veto it. This looks a lot like, to me at least, it looks a lot like the laws that states put on the books to deal with opioids. That is setting penalties or prescription uh, mandates on physicians and telling them, we're going to look at your prescriptions. And if they don't meet a government-approved body's guidelines, you might be in serious trouble. And it's the, the same kind of chilling effect, uh, once again, on physicians. You know, that's an excellent point. Uh, in fact, um, in 2016, this, when the CDC came out with its opioid prescribing guidelines, which they stressed were just suggestions, they weren't meant to be mandates. But of course, anytime the government suggests anything, it's like when Tony Soprano suggests something, you know, you better do it. At least that's the way people interpret it. So uh, they base their prescription recommend dosage recommendations on something called morphine milligram equivalents, which uh, I don't want to get too into the technicalities here, but it came under a lot of criticism from pharmacologists and clinicians as being junk science. Well, many states, including my own state, put into law that you can't prescribe more than X number of morphine milligram equivalents of this of a drug to a patient in a given 24-hour period. And even pharmacies and even Medicare is saying, we're not going to allow you to get a prescription filled for more than that amount in a given 24-hour period. Well, after a whole bunch of criticism, the CDC is about to come out with revised guidelines, and this time they're taking that out of its of their recommendations. They're still including it in the discussion, but they're no longer using that as a benchmark. But in many states, it's too late. It's in the law. It's etched in stone. You can't, you can't legislate evolving scientific information. You can't put that into law. Luckily, for the sake of the medical of the practice of medicine, this uh, AB two hundred nine eight only pertains to COVID nineteen. It would be even worse if it pertained to you know involving medical science in general so because uh, it would just really just cast a chilling effect on all discussion about scientific data regarding different medical conditions Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast <laughs>